Today we're continuing our journey, our long, slow march through the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be reading verse 21 and 22. It can be found on page 963 in your Blue Pew Bibles. Challenge you to say that ten times fast. (laughs) Hear God's word for me and for you, Jesus' words to you. You've heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is God's word for me, for you. The shortest chapter that I've read in any book over the last 10 years comes from this bright red book called Good and Angry. Redeeming Angry Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness by David Powelson. And you open up to chapter 2 is a very, very short chapter that is contained on a single page. The title of the chapter asks this, Do you have a serious problem with anger? And the succinctness of the chapter is expressed in just one word. Yes. So other than the chapter title, which asks the question, the word yes is the sum total of the entire chapter. And the question is, how can David Paulson, and this author be so sure? He hasn't met me after all. How can he dare say that I have a serious anger problem? I'm getting serious angry that he would suggest that I have a serious anger problem. You see, the Gottman Institute of Counseling talks about the iceberg of anger. Namely, that there is often a whole realm of buried and sometimes unexplored anger just beneath the surface of our lives. You have a serious problem with anger if you are irritable, cranky, grouchy, or testy. You are strong-willed, argumentative, and volatile. You are sometimes disappointed and disillusioned and perhaps now embittered or resentful. That you explode loudly or... Simmer quietly. If people close to you would confirm that you engage in quiet brooding, defensive withdrawal, judgmental thoughts, low-grade irritability, or a critical attitude. Are you beginning to agree with the author? (laughs) Anger is rooted in frustrated desires. Turn to your neighbor and say it. Anger is rooted... And frustrated. Of course, that was for them. It wasn't for you. How can David Paulson say that you have a serious anger problem? Why? Because we all experience and we all have frustrated desires. You want peace and quiet? You get none. You want your boss at work to leave you alone? It doesn't happen. You want your neighbor's dog to quiet down 
for him to park his car in a different spot. This happens and this goes on for years. You see, anger is a confusing, confusing emotion. Sometimes it feels good to get things off your chest. On the other hand, anger can sometimes hide for years, simmering just under the surface of your life. It becomes hard to pinpoint, like irritability or a complaining spirit. Because, let's just be frank and honest, you might have a lot of things in your life to complain about. Or you might feel justified in your uh, uh, low-grade irritability. After all, anybody else in your shoes would surely not be coping as good as you are. And often, anger feels like an unwanted guest in your life, coming in from the outside. So you say to yourself, and rather convincingly at that, I'm not really what people would call an angry person. I don't really have an anger problem. Rather, I just get angry occasionally. And I'm here today to tell you with all the Christian love that is in my heart, baloney. (laughs) And so I love what uh, David Paulson says, a little tongue-in-cheek perhaps. He says this, anger becomes something that is happening to you or in you. You deal with it. You harness it. Or liberate it. Or manage it. Or rid yourself of it. But you are not intrinsically responsible for it. It is going on inside you. But you, little angel that you are, aren't doing it. He says one key to getting anger straight is to understand that when you are angry, you are doing something. Anger is not an it. Anger is just not one part of you. Anger does not happen to you as sort of this force that comes from the outside. You do anger. So I won't ask you to turn to your neighbor and say this, but you do anger. So Jesus really helps us in these two verses confront the seriousness of anger in our lives. And he alludes to what commandment of the ten, the sixth commandment. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not Murder, but I say to you. And this is really the first of six different times in this chapter what uh, some folks call the so-called antitheses of Jesus. And five of the six in this chapter five of Matthew have this structure. Number one, Old Testament commandment. Followed by number two, Jesus' intensifying, clarifying, deepening, and fulfilling command. And then Jesus will just give you a little steps of obedience to put this into play in your life. And so it's important to understand what Jesus is doing in these, but I say to you, sayings. They occur six times in the chapter. Teachers and rabbis in Jesus' day would often contrast their interpretation of the law with other teachers. For instance, I might say something like this, Pastor Steve said something last week, but I say to you, right? But no first century rabbi, no contemporary teacher of Jesus would dare say, but I say to you, after citing an Old Testament commandment. Jesus is alone and by his own authority saying he doesn't abolish the law and the prophets. We learned that 
from verses 17 through 20. So Jesus doesn't displace the scripture, but he becomes its foremost authoritative interpreter. So just as Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, just as Jesus is the new temple, just as Jesus fulfills all the ethical and sacrificial requirements of the law, so too by saying, but I say to you, he is in effect saying, I am Lord even over the scripture. Jesus's words begin to clarify and intensify all the ethical teachings of the Old Testament. And he begins to relocate the true center of ethical teachings and thought from the Torah to Jesus and his ministry and his teachings. And so if you haven't understood this about Jesus, hear it again today. Jesus completely reshapes first century Judaism around his own person. If you haven't understood that, go back and listen to some of the, uh, the, the sermons on the Gospel of John, right? Because Jesus is deeply interacting in his life and his ministry with the Old Testament. So when we come today to this teaching on anger, we may think Jesus understands, and he does. And then you might think, and so Jesus is going to let me off the hook, but he doesn't, does he? He doesn't let you off the hook. In fact, he deepens and intensifies what obedience to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, truly means for your life and for mine. And Jesus gives us three warnings. First, Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother. Anger here is the word orgazimonos, uh, uh, which is not simply a short-lived, explosive type of anger, a volcano, as it were. Rather, the verb is a present tense participle expressing a fixed type of anger. You could translate the phrase, is being anger, angry, or is carrying anger, is remaining angry. And we have a great idiom for this in the English language, do we not? We say that so-and-so is nursing a grudge. In other words, keeping anger warm just under the surface of their life. And so this gets at all the iceberg emotions in the Gottman iceberg of anger. This is a person who is deciding to remain angry because of this hurt or because of that situation or because of this or that person in their life. Second, Jesus says, whoever insults his brother. It's a rather large category that NIV helps clarify by saying whoever says to his brother or sister, Raka which is a difficult word in Aramaic to translate, but it may mean idiot or dummy, or maybe even maybe Lucy's favorite word for Charlie Brown, you blockhead. And third, Jesus says, whoever says you fool, which if you know and have read the Psalms and the Proverbs, really gets at the moral character of a person. So many interpreters will say something like this, raka, insults the brain, person's mental makeup, while you fool insults the heart or the character, a person's moral makeup. So Jesus warns us against simmering anger, flippant dismissal, and verbal contempt. Ever been there? Those are the words of Frederick Bruner. Let me say that again. Jesus warns us against simmering anger, flippant dismissal, and verbal contempt. Do you have a serious anger 
issue? The answer is, you're not alone. We all do. And the consequences are all equally shocking and terrible. Liable to three things. Liable to judgment, as in culpable to condemnation by God at the judgment. Liable to the council, literally the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court of law. And liable to the Gehenna of fire, the image of hell that Jesus used in the Gospels. Are you beginning to sense and understand, if you haven't already before, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, how complex, nuanced Jesus is? Jesus is not only the preacher of love and grace and compassion, though of course He is all those things. Jesus here is is the preacher of judgment and hell. And often, in our world today, believers will emphasize only one or the other. They'll fall off this cliff or fall off that cliff. But that is really remaking Jesus after their own image. What you'd like for Him to be. And if we've learned anything from the Sermon on the Mount, it's this. That Jesus is radical. That the sermon is revolutionary. And that the sermon often casts you back time and time again to trust Jesus in your poverty of spirit because His righteousness alone and His grace alone is the only hope we have for sticking our little pinky toe into the Sermon on the Mount and actually obeying it and living it out and applying it to our lives. So today, let me suggest that the interpretation is is pretty straightforward. It's really the application, is it not, that is hard for us to put into our lives. And so let's begin here with the application. Let's begin here. Say a man or a woman comes home from work. You come home from a particularly long day. Can you imagine yourself there? And you say, Pastor, it's not hard to imagine. That's like me every day. Stressed out, tired, overworked. But your desire when you come home and cross the threshold of your house is for peace, for affection, for encouragement, perhaps if it's not too much to ask for, a warm meal. But as you get home, your spouse immediately says to you, why are you late? And why don't you ever call? Don't you see the house is a mess? The kids are hungry. This is on you, right? This is your fault. You deal with it. Now, immediately you feel just a joy in your heart. No, you feel immediately attacked. Your sunny disposition that you might not have had in the first place is surely gone now. And all of the desires that you had for this evening are slowly withering and dying away. And you begin to feel something deep in your soul. That is an anger rooted in frustrated desires. And our culture will tell you to do either one of two things at this moment of potential conflict. Stuff it down and ignore it. Hmm? Pretend like it never happened or dump it all out. Here we go. Tit for tat. The gloves are on, right? And some of you, what we call stuffers. Some of you are stuffers. You take the anger that's building within you and what do you do? You stuff it down, way down, deep in your soul. You don't name it. You don't acknowledge it you don't ever imagine in a million years that you could possibly just maybe have an anger 
problem. And so if you do anything with anger, it is something that simply overwhelms you and overwhelms your emotions. You simply don't register in any place in your heart or in your life or in your soul that, hello, I am dealing with frustrated and unmet desires. And so what do you do? You try, but often unsuccessfully, to mask it. And you wear a mask, maybe a smiling face, which only serves to hide the deeper wounds in your life. And friends, let me tell you this. For God to heal you in those deep places, you often have to take the risk to rip off the band-aid, to acknowledge the hurt, to acknowledge the anger in your life. Because sometimes it's a very healing process to simply acknowledge what is going on. God, I am angry. God, I am resentful. God, have I been carrying around a seed of bitterness for all the desires, for all my disillusioned dreams in my life? Lord, help me. Do you know, friends, that the Lord gives you all kinds of permission to name every single one of those hurts? That the Lord gives you permission at a heart level to name those hurts, to name all those umbrella terms for anger. On the other hand, some of you are dumpers. You meet anger with more anger. You dump it all out. And our culture at precisely this moment will tell you if you need to give that person a little piece of your mind, go ahead and do it, right? But have you ever asked, why does our culture say that? Why does our culture counsel us in this way? I love what Tim Keller says. He says the only heroic narrative in our culture today is this. Be true to yourself. The only narrative that our culture applauds with fanfare is be true to yourself. That's the only morality often that our culture knows. And so the only negative moral judgment that our culture will often make is if you don't be true to yourself. Do you see how quickly this leads away from any type of objective standard, that one that might be found in the Word of God? Coupled with this, our culture will often evaluate a decision pragmatically, but not morally. And so in a moment of conflict, the culture will say, well, do you need to get something off your chest? Will it make you feel better? Then go ahead and vent, dump it all out. That is, our culture pushes you to evaluate your response in a pragmatic, but not in a moral way. And that is a big problem if we take seriously the words of Jesus. Because Jesus is not looking at your anger problem through the lens of pragmatism, but through a lens of morality as something that can lead to judgment. So our pragmatic culture tells you, number one, you have rights. Two, if it makes you feel better to express emotion, go ahead and do it. And three, you're just being true to yourself after all. Dump it all out. Meanwhile, your spouse or your family or your coworkers, they're all bearing the brunt of this advice. And so I love what Larry Crabb says in his little pamphlet, How to Deal with Anger. And I've given these away on more than one occasion. Larry Crabb says that you need to distinguish between needs and desires. That is, we all have needs. 
placed in a deep place in our lives, in our souls by the Lord, that need to be securely and unconditionally loved. Loved with the kind of love that can never be earned so it can never be lost. So says Larry Crabb. You long to experience the power of the gospel, which is looking bad in the presence of love. This is how Larry Crabb puts it. This is a deep human need. And who meets you there in your place of ugliness, in your place of deep brokenness, in your sinfulness? Who is the only person, the only being that meets you perfectly there, faithfully, every time? consistently only God through Christ on the cross meets you there he loves you unconditionally he loves you securely he loves you everlastingly eternally all the ugly all the bad in the presence of his love so the beloved disciple John could say this how great the love the father has lavished on us that what we should be called children of God so as a Christ follower what do you know about yourself If you call yourself a Christian, what should you know and often remind yourself day after day, whether you are a housewife barely hanging on with young children, whether you are in the workplace totally overwhelmed and stressed out, whether you might be retired and sometimes you look back and you find yourself occasionally looking back on life and having regrets about certain decisions or about certain seasons in your life. Friends, what do you know about yourself? Your deepest needs are all met. Your deepest needs are met in Christ. And the more time you spend in his word, the more time you spend in his presence, the more you become fully convinced in Christ, I have everything I need for life and for godliness. And so that changes how you move into your world and and how you move into relationships. How you move into the life of your spouse and the the relationship of your family, our, our church family. You move into relationship, how? With all your needs already met. And therefore, you move into relationships with the goal of ministry. Have you ever thought of marriage under the paradigm of ministry? More often, our paradigm is the place where my desires are met. That marriage is, we, we, we conceive it under this paradigm. This is a place where this person is going to meet all of my desires. But Jesus longs for you to move into that relationship and all relationships with the goal of love, with the goal of ministry. But you say, Pastor, I still have desires, right? What am I supposed to do with those? And it's true, a spouse may come home at night with the desire for affection, for encouragement, for connection. For a warm meal, a peaceful night. And these are all, get me here, hear me clearly. These are all understandable desires. And all are longing for respect. All are longing for understanding and kindness. And every sphere of our lives comes, all resides where? On that outside circle. There, with our desires. And here's the truth. God has never promised you the outer circle. Not once. Not one time. Never. So when you confuse your needs with your desires, what happens to you? You suddenly begin to work for your desires. And you begin controlling 
other people to get your desires met. You become manipulative to get your desires met. You begin pounding uh, uh, your fist and yelling at the top of your lungs. Why? To get your desires met. You've mistaken your needs with your desires. Your needs are something which you can get through the grace of God in Christ. Nobody can block you because God gives it to you freely. But if I find myself thinking my wife or my employer or my friend can block something that I want, that's not a need. That's a desire. And so you should be very, very careful of making a desire a supreme goal in your life because it can be frustrated and blocked by other people. Christ has given you everything you need. And so you're free to love. You're free to minister to others. And so the question remains still, does it not? What are we to do with anger? Do you express it? Do you not express it? And let me, let me say this, and I wish I had a slide for you. The overarching general principle is this with anger. Express anger if it's rooted in the ministry of love. That is hard to live out. It's simple to say, so let me say it again. The overarching general principle is this. Express anger if it's rooted in the ministry of love. Do you know that my wife can get angry at me and express love all at the same time? Isn't she amazing? She longs for me to be a better husband. She longs for me to be a better father. She longs for me to be a better pastor. And so sometimes she will express anger that helps me and ministers to me to become one, if not all three of those things in my life. Let me continue to apply this by looking at Ezekiel chapter 24. The word of the Lord says this. Ezekiel chapter 24. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. In other words, your wife. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Now, this is a hard passage because God is calling on Ezekiel to enact a symbolic and a prophetic act against Israel. In other words, there is a judgment coming on Israel so severe that a wife's death will pale in comparison and by comparison justify no tears whatsoever. And so we learn two things. I'm borrowing here from my hero, Larry Crabb. Number one, God acknowledged that Ezekiel would feel real emotions. And so you're not to simply stuff it down and ignore it, nor are you just to simply dump it all out. He says, do not lament or weep or shed any tears. But what you're to do is this, groan inwardly. There is a grief coming. You are to experience, Ezekiel, the full weight of this emotion. You need to acknowledge this emotion before the Lord. And so with anger, when it arises within you, what are you to do? You acknowledge it. You don't simply superficially deal with it. Oh, Lord, help me and forgive me again for being angry. No, you pray. God, I am livid. God, I am furious and I'm so hurt. God, I wonder if I'm becoming bitter. Am I becoming resentful? Lord, I'm carrying lots of anger in my soul. It's even reflected the way on my shoulders. Lord, help me. You acknowledge it. Two, God instructed Ezekiel to deny himself the public expression of his emotions. Ezekiel, acknowledge your emotions privately, 
but don't express them publicly. Is that hard to do for you? Am I the only one? You see, God had a purpose for Ezekiel as he, what? As he ministered to Israel. His lack of public grief would speak to Israel in their apostasy, in their sinfulness, that something far greater than the death of Ezekiel's wife was on the horizon. In other words, Ezekiel subordinated the public expression of his emotions for the purpose of ministering to the people around him. And that's very instructive for us as we apply these words of Jesus and these words to Ezekiel. So here's the two abiding principles from God's instruction to Ezekiel. Number one, acknowledge to yourself and to God how you feel. Letting yourself experience inwardly the full weight of your emotions. So what? You don't simply stuff it down. You don't ignore it. But two, you subordinate the public expression of your feelings unless it advances the overarching goal of ministering to and loving others. So neither do you automatically dump it all out. You acknowledge the anger to God and to yourself, and then you subordinate the expression of that emotion to the greater, to the more overarching goal of ministry and love. And if the emotion doesn't further love, if the emotion doesn't further ministry, then you don't express it. But if it does, and if it can, then you express it in its proper time and in its proper place. So let's go back. You're coming home. You just got attacked. You had a sunny disposition. It was all taken away in a moment. How do you react? You pray right at the moment. You acknowledge that hurt. You acknowledge that emotion before God and to yourself. And then maybe 20 minutes from now, maybe two minutes from now, maybe two hours from then, maybe the next day you express that if you can love and minister to that person in a way that furthers the gospel for that relationship in their life. A lot more could be said, but we'll say it next week. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for these words of Jesus. Lord, they cut us to the core. And so we run again to you and for your grace and for your mercy to live this out in our lives. And so won't you help us by sending us your spirit to do just that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.